Hello and welcome to Beyond Busy, episode 100. Beyond Busy is the show that asks the bigger questions about work. My name is Graham Alcott, I'm your host for the show and I'm delighted to bring you this very special compilation episode of Beyond Busy. We started this podcast on March the 15th, 2016. Natalie Reynolds, my friend, was our first guest. She is the author of a book called We Have a Deal and we're going to hear from her in part three of this three-part Beyond Busy 100 episode. And what we're going to do is split this down into three topic areas. So part one, which you're listening to right now, is going to focus on productivity. And then in part two, we'll look at work-life balance. And then in the final part, you guessed it, we're going to talk about happiness and success. So Beyond Busy episode 100, part one, which is about productivity, you're going to hear from a couple of the leading lights when it comes to productivity books and writing. You're going to hear from the director of one of Australia's most famous wineries. You're going to hear from an explorer who has conquered the North Pole and the South Pole. You're going to hear from a couple of really inspiring female entrepreneurs. You're going to hear from one of the leading coaches and speakers uh, about talking honestly. You're going to hear from a former US Navy commander around how to turn the ship around. And also one of the dragons from Dragon's Den. So pretty good lineup, I think, for the productivity part of Beyond Busy 100. And the first guest is someone who probably needs very, very little introduction. He is Cal Newport, the author of Deep Work. So, Cal, this is a really interesting episode. I think one of the privileges of Beyond Busy is being able to drop an email to someone whose work I really admire, whether it's an author, whether it's an entrepreneur, um, whether it's a creative person, and just say, hey, I do this podcast I'm just really curious about your work and I love your work. I'd love to have you on. And they kind of say, you know, never meet your heroes. But I have to say, I've never been um, particularly let down by anyone that I've interviewed. Like I've always really come come away with really positive uh, views of the people who I have interviewed. And Cal was no exception. So this episode, we were sort of going back and forth on dates a little bit and trying to trying to make it work. And then I realized that in a couple of weeks time, I was actually going out to North America and I was going to be in Toronto on one of my little baseball trips, right? So I kind of figured, you know, if we're going to do this on Zoom, if we're going to do this down the line, then we may as well be in the same time zone. Because if you're in the same time zone, then it can be both of your lunch times. And what often happens with this podcast is if I'm interviewing people, particularly on the West Coast of the States, then it's like, you know, they're waking up like bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. I'm doing it at like 5 p.m. and I'm really tired. And it just kind of feels like there's an energy mismatch. So I just felt like, okay, if we can't be face-to-face together, which is how I've tried to do a lot of the episodes, and we'll get onto that, like, you know, quite a few of the ones you're going to hear today are where I am, you know, face-to-face in a room with the person. So, um, you know, if you can't do that, if and I think that's always the preference for me, if you can't do that, you might as well be in the same time zone and on the same kind of energy. So it felt like that was a, a useful uh, sort of middle ground, a useful sort of compromise. Um, so I'm in an Airbnb in Toronto, sat on the kitchen table with my laptop. Um, Cal's in his office in Washington. And here's my conversation with Cal Newport. We talk a little bit about his book, Digital Minimalism. We talk about his whole thesis around attention and you know using attention to do great work which is of course also my thesis with productivity ninja so we are kind of two uh, 
you know, very uh, kindred spirits when it comes to productivity. And I love Cal's work. Um, so we talk about his book, Digital Minimalism. And we also talk about the fear of missing out. So let's get into it. The first contribution for Beyond Busy 100 is none other than Cal Newport. And you talked about in the book, this idea of um, batching and so batching different types of work. There's a, an academic example that you uh, looked at where an academic sort of does most of their teaching work at one part of the year and most of their research in another part of the year and then kind of micro batching as well. So do you want to say a bit more about that and just how how that can really help to boost productivity and increase attention? Well, so something we know about the way the human brain works is that if you want to try to generate a lot of cognitive horsepower, so think hard and produce things that are worth a lot of value, uninterrupted, long chunks of uninterrupted time is really important. And this is because there's a sort of psychological cost that we now understand pretty well to context switching. So when you're staring at, let's say, that open Word document and thinking really hard about writing a brief or whatever it is, the, the deep work effort that's in front of you, but every 10 or 15 minutes, you quickly jump over to Gmail just to make sure that the, some urgent email you're waiting for hasn't yet arrived. That seems harmless because for the most part, you're just focusing on the Microsoft Word document thinking hard. And it's really only a minute here and a minute there that you're looking at your email. But we now know from modern psychology that there's a real cost to that context switch. So by switching your attention to that email and then switching it back, there's an attention residue left from that switch that makes it harder to think hard, right? It reduces your cognitive performance. It can take yeah. a while for it to clear out. And so if you really want to get the most value or benefit out of your brain, we know it works better to be doing hour after hour of just working on one thing. We have to count those quick checks of phones and inboxes uh, to be almost as dangerous as the old, old-fashioned multitasking where people used to keep multiple windows open at the same time. It can be almost as And do you know what? I mean, it's so funny going into organizations, the amount of times I see people still having 15 windows open on the screen in front of them and, you know, 15 sets of paperwork and phones and screens around them. Um, often with lots of different things. So I think there's, it just feels like there's a lot of, there's a lot of work for you to do here, right? In um, helping organizations to kind of see this differently. Right. Well, I also want to add that uh, something that happened, which, which goes underreported, but I think is really important is that starting in the 1990s in particular, where we really began to integrate personal computers and digital networking into people's daily work experience, we actually had an explosion of the amount of sort of administrative work, what you would call collaborate mm. in your framework, added to the daily routine of most typical workers that had some sort of uh, skilled product that they produce. We're used to it now, but it's actually quite artificial. And it was a sort of unintended consequence of adding these productivity enhancing computers, networks, and tools into our life is that we have jammed together huge amounts of administrative responsibilities on the same plate uh, of people that are also supposed to be doing highly skilled thinking to produce value. There's a This is an effect. I don't write about this in deep work, but it's something I've been researching more recently. There's this effect that the economist Peter Sassone calls the diminishment of intellectual specialization. And essentially what happens is when you get these new tools like email and computers and word processors and spreadsheets, in the short term, you say, great, this is going to save us so much money. We don't need dedicated support staff. Now you, the programmer, can write your own memos or you can you don't need a typist. And you, with email, you don't need a secretary to handle your phones when you're not around. And it seems like you're saving money. But what happens is, is you throw basically all the administrative work onto the plate of the people who are supposed to be doing intellectually specialized work. And their productivity drops so much that you would actually be saving money 
to have remained kept the investment in dedicated administrative staff because it now takes many more of the high skilled workers to produce the same amount of work that would be capable with less workers if you're able to aggressively segregate the administrative from the specialized. And so I just mm, want to put that as an yeah. aside, but a good foundation for this conversation is that we have mixed the administrative and the specialized uh, to a huge degree. And we did this in an emergent fashion, right? It's not that it was a great grand plan. It's something that just kind of crept up on us. And I think it's a source of both a lot of lost productivity and unhappiness. Um, and you said something there that I really liked from the book as well, which is um, in terms of digital minimalism and minimalism in general, minimalists don't mind missing small things. And I think that's something that particularly in our society where we're very driven by perfection and we're very driven by completing everything and nothing falling between the cracks and, and that kind of a mentality, it can be quite a difficult emotional thing sometimes, the idea of, of missing things or, or missing out on things. So could you just tell us a bit more about that and how you how you personally and how you sort of um, help other people to to deal with the idea of missing things. So this fear of missing out is really an instantiation of a common philosophy throughout our history, which is called maximalism. And so the maximalism philosophy says you don't want to miss out on any possible value. So to a maximalist, if they miss out on something that could be valuable, they, they experience that as if someone took that value from them. You know, so mm. like someone took something from me. So they get really, really worried about, I don't want to miss any possible value. In a lot of arenas in our life, it's pretty clear that maximalism is not in our best interest, right? So if we think about maximalism with respect to our physical stuff in our house, the biggest maximalists are also called hoarders. So their entire <laughs> house is overstuffed with, with whatever. And the reason it is, like if you talk to a hoarder, they're really worried about getting rid of something that they might need one day or that has some little bit of value, or one day they might find it to be sentimental. If you, if you go into a hoarder's house, you can point to anything, and they'll be able to give you a reason why it's really important that they keep it. In fact, this is an effect that people know who've worked with hoarders to clean their house, is that it's actually really difficult to talk them into getting rid of anything, because there's always a story, this could bring me value, This maybe this could bring me value, right? But of course, they're much less happy having their house be overstuffed than they would be than if it was, if it was pared down to being more intentional. So uh, when we move over to our digital life, the same thing's going on. So not only do people have many more apps and services than they need, but they use them way more than they need, in part because they've told themselves this maximalist story that I might miss out on something. And if I do, it's like someone's taking that right. value from me. And so what's the, what's the antonym of maximalism? What's the thing that is the opposite of it in terms of an approach to life? Well, that's minimalism. And minimalism is an old idea. I mean, it goes all the way back to Marcus Aurelius. And it basically says, you know what? You're better off in most arenas of human endeavor Focusing on the small number of things that you know for sure are really important to the exclusion of other things that might give you a little bit of value. Um, if you focus your energy on the things that you know are really valuable, you will end up better off than trying to take some of that energy, take it away from the really valuable things and spread it out over smaller value endeavors, right? So mm. a minimalist inside the house would be like Mary Kondo. Get rid of the stuff that is kind of cluttering up your house and a little bit important and just focus on the stuff that, you know, I really love this piece of clothing. I really wear it a lot. You'll end up much happier. In your digital life, minimalism is essentially saying, uh, find the small number of activities to give you huge wins and then just focus your energy on those. Don't dissipate or waste your energy on seeking out these small little boosts or wins because you're going to end up worse off. Uh, the minimalist is much more worried about not spending enough time on the things they know for sure they love than they are worried about missing out on small things that they don't even know about.
So Cal Newport there, and if you haven't checked out his books, I would highly recommend Deep Work as the next book to read after How to Be a Productivity Ninja, of course. So from Washington, D.C., we're going to go to Adelaide, Australia. This was just one of my favourite ones to do, and it proves that there are lessons to be taken from all kind of places. I often talk in Productivity Ninja uh, when, I do, when I'm doing talks, one of our characteristics is unorthodoxy and taking inspiration from unusual places. You wouldn't necessarily think that um, a winery in South Australia was a good place to go and learn lessons about productivity, but I just felt like there were some really interesting uh, things to share from this conversation. So I arrived, my friend Tracy drove me to the outskirts of Adelaide, um, one of the, the posh suburbs of Adelaide, and arrived at this quite ramshackle looking house full of paintings and, you know, just creative stuff all around it. And we sat in Chester's garden. He was really generous with his time. And uh, I got to talk to him about all things Darenberg. I had come across Darenberg because I started drinking this wine called Darry's Original. And I just loved that wine. It was uh, named after um, Darry, who was one of the original uh, owners of the Darenberg winery and they also have wines called things like the Senesiliophobic Cat and the story of this particular wine is that uh, Chester when he was a kid had a cat called Non-Alcoholic Booze and the family shortened the name to just Booze because they discovered that the cat really liked red wine so they tried to keep the cat away from drinking red wine and this cat developed uh, a monumental case of Senesilicophobia, which is the fear of an empty glass. So you can now buy a wine called the Senesilophobic Cat. So um, I talked to Chester about storytelling and then we talk about productivity. It feels like storytelling is a really important part of, of branding and wine and just really love this conversation. And then we get on to him talking about productivity. And one of the things that was fascinating is that Chester is, you know, basically someone who is the custodian of Darenberg. So he inherited it from um, his ancestors. He intends to pass it on to the next generation. And we talk about that in this little clip here. So I just think there's something really interesting where you don't necessarily have uh, that goal of starting something from scratch, but you are equally as you know invested in wanting to do a good job on behalf of um, the people that came before you and set things up really well for um, the people that lie ahead of you. So we talk about, pro about productivity, we talk about storytelling. Here is me sat in Chester Osborne's garden in Adelaide, Australia. Here we go. Like, do you get a sense of what makes a good story or what's going to make a good, you know, what's going to be that entertaining, memorable thing? And do you think you've got better at it over the years? Like, is that a skill that you can master and develop? Yeah, I think, I think once you develop one artistic expression to the nth degree, like yeah. making wine, for yeah. example, you, you start looking at other mediums around to play with and go, well, let's, let's find, let's explore another artistic area. So, um, and, and, uh, and really art is supplying something interesting for the masses or for, mm, or for yeah. an individual group or whatever. Yeah. And so, um, but it's also a self-expression which is a lot of fun. And I suppose you wonder what really drives artists most of the time is the sense of trying to um, make something that uh, um, makes them feel a better person, really. Yeah, yeah. And, and so 
if you're not being, if your wines aren't being written up the way you'd like, and and people are bagging you for whatever reasons, you know, there's people jealous and other things and whatever, then those sorts of things actually drive you to go. Well, I'm going to show them. I'm going to make something that's better than anything ever done, mm. you know? and and uh, people are going to love it, you know, whatever, you know, or maybe not. I don't know. Yeah. And and uh, and so uh, and getting back to answering your question about what's it like in a family business and going on from from uh, the previous generation uh, someone once said to me that really we're like custodians in multi-generational companies yeah, yeah. in that we we basically have to take our parents um and and their forebears uh, assets um we, uh, we can add to them we can uh, live off them beautifully if we're, if we're lucky, and then we have to hand them to our children. Yeah, and in, and hopefully in a in a more uh, enhanced way, really. Uh, and so that's really way, the best way to look at family assets like that. Mm. Yeah, and I think that really interests me. Something I um, I sort of think about a lot. You know, interviewing people who have, who've started their own business or who are on big career trajectories and they're trying to get that career to the next stage or whatever um you know there's a very um there's a very set motivation there and there's almost like with a lot of career paths there's there's a very set path that you follow whereas obviously with you it's about about being the custodian of those those assets and like taking it to that next stage but like it's already it's already built it's already there in a sense as well isn't it so like so like it's, it's slightly different from if you start started something from scratch. It's yeah. a different sort of dynamic, I guess. It is a very different dynamic, um, and and uh, so I'm learning about starting things from scratch actually because uh, I'm starting a clothing label as well. Right. Okay. Uh, and I suppose the cube is another thing where you've that you know so you have those uh, abilities to do the entrepreneurial stuff within Darenberg in those different ways as well as what tell me about the clo- clothing label clothing label yeah uh, so loud male shirts is where we're starting <laughs> my, my partner and I and uh, I wonder I wonder why you decided to uh, start there it would probably be uh, worth uh, just describing the shirt that you're wearing right now just for the, the podcast listeners well yeah it, it's uh, it's got enormous amounts of colour as you can see every rainbow colour uh, pinks and greens and blues and reds and yellows and oranges and, and uh, a lot of embroidery Embroidery, a lot of other little odd bits and pieces everywhere yeah. that have been stuck on, um, that are quite fun and loud and whatever. And um, and I, I, I'm very much known for wearing loud shirts, yeah, um, uh, because I, I think that uh, life should be pushed a little bit further into the colour spectrum and, and characterful spectrum, and, yeah. Uh, and it also. It, enhances everyone around you they'd say oh wow that's wild shit it's fantastic you know, what a great way to meet someone like that you know rather than hi you know, well, you know <laughs> and and you know so so i'm always always wearing loud shirts and yeah. loud, loud shoes and so on but, uh, but the clothing the clothing label is going to be called beakers twisterous Okay. That was Beakers Twisterous. It's hard to say when you've got a cold and a croaky voice like me right now. But uh, it's uh, my nickname at school was Twisted Beak because uh, <laughs> I was very dyslexic when I spoke. I spoke muddled. So it was, first of all, I was called muddled because the words were around the wrong way. <laughs> and then Twisted. And then Twisted Beak. And then uh, uh, it was just 
so you, someone grabbed their nose with their hand and took twin twirled it and and made that noise. So that, that was my nickname at school. Uh, but uh, and I went well. I'll, I'll call. The, I'll intellectualise it and call the label Beakers Twisterus. We'll have a, <laughs> a, a like a loud, colourful bird as the emblem with a twisted beak that turns into a corkscrew. And so that's where the, the connection comes back into it. So where are you up to with that? Is that um, we hope to have it or something out in the marketplace in the next six months. Okay. Uh, cool. So we're, we're getting a lot closer, uh, and we've got some great people who are helping us get there because it's the, it's a complex equation uh, way of doing things. If you haven't ever done uh, shirts, you know, uh, yeah, yeah, then you know, yeah. it's a whole new industry. Obviously, finding the right people and whatever. But the technology. I started working on this back in the uh, uh, nearly ten years ago. And the technology for printing has changed dramatically since then, so it's actually much easier now for us to do it and yeah. print multicolours you know, uh, using laser printing and whatever, rather than um, using screen printing, which we really had to do before. And screen printing meant you had to do a minimum of 300 shirts. Yeah, sure. And so that's yeah. a bit more difficult. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it, like it's, so it's really interesting to me, this whole thing of um, the the family business the custodian custodian dynamic and then this entrepreneurial uh, creative um, side that you have as well um, like have you ever felt like you wanted to do more of that creative stuff outside of Darenberg like have you ever felt like your destiny was always going to be to be within this business and you've wanted to break out of that like did you ever say to your dad I'm not going to be part of this business I'm going to go off and do my own thing and just do something really separate uh, when I was seven years old I sat on uh, uh, one of the gods of wine in Australia Len Evans who's unfortunately passed away now but he was the first wine journalist and great show judge and whatever yeah I sat on his knee when I was seven years old he used to come and stay with us yeah and uh, and he said to me one day he said what sort of wine are you going to make when you grow up mm. and I said oh yummy one <laughs> <laughs> and uh, of course I answered him as if I am going to be a winemaker because he's actually quite intimidating fellow a uh, strong Welshman and right. uh, and uh, I didn't uh, I didn't want to upset him you know <laughs> sitting on his knee especially <laughs> uh, but uh, I blame him that I'm a winemaker because <laughs> I had to right. carry through with it but no I always wanted to be a winemaker yeah uh, that or uh, in a band as a rock star that was the other thing that i would have liked to have been but uh, uh, i think the the, the winemaker is probably the easier one to do successfully yeah um but uh, uh i did actually dabble in photography quite a bit mm. and was offered a job in photography which i was never going to take up but i won best black and white photo in australia in 1979 okay and i still play with photography not not with a dark room anymore but i did most yeah. days but we, we don't need a dark room anymore and uh so i i, I dabble with all sorts of other art forms and scholars, you know, they, that's where the architecture with the cube came yeah, from. Yeah, it's another yeah. art form, of course, but uh, I sculpt and paint and whatever else, and yeah. donate some paintings and whatever to to charity here and there. And when you were sort of just before you took over as being the chief winemaker, so you uh, went and did a lot of studying. You travelled around a lot and looked at vineyards in lots of different parts of the world. Um, and then you you spent some time um, in your early days. You worked in Hunter Valley for Tullocks. And, yes, yes, I, um, uh, I did. And Hardy's Chateau Renoir. That's right. Yes, uh, I did vintage in 1980 at mm. uh, Tullocks and Hunter, and then again in '82. Uh, and in '83, did vintage at Hardy's, um, yeah. and uh, which is not far away from where I am. And uh, but and everybody then, at that time, they must have known that you're Darry's kid, right? They must know yeah. that you're part of part of the Darenberg family, and so were they. 
like was there a sense of not wanting to give away their secrets to somebody from basically I mean basically a competitor right I don't think really anyone has many secrets in the wine industry oh really um, the secret is out there in the vineyard <laughs> and being careful in the winery and it's yeah. not much of a secret okay. you know uh, um, some people you know have a few little tricks and things there but mm. most of those have been everyone knows about now anyway right, okay. uh, so um and, and I think when they did employ me, they thought, oh, he'll know what he's doing. He's from a winery. And I've right, worked half okay. of all my holidays in the winery uh, and in the vineyard from when I was seven years old. So yeah. I really did grow up with it. So you grew up and around so, it so, and, you, like, yeah, you, you know, like, everything there is to know, I guess. But we were fairly old-fashioned in those days. And so yeah. um, when I moved to these other wineries, I hadn't used a lot of the you know gases and things so and uh and every winery is a bit different so i think i was, I was still quite primitive and young when yeah, i yeah. so i was only uh, like 19 years old when i when we got that first job and uh and then yeah as i say hardy's in 83 and then i i, I finished a degree in winemaking in 83 and then in 84 went over to europe with two other winemakers for six months and we visited four wineries a day for six months. Uh, wow. we, I came back about twice the size. <laughs> and uh, but uh, but we really got a good grasp for yeah. what happens in Europe. Yeah. And it was a really amazing time, 1984, because uh, we were looking at 82 and 83 Bordeaux, of course. Which 82 was the end of the armchair era, where the winemakers got out of their armchair and went into the vineyard to see what they were doing. It was mm. the beginning of uh, great wines of of uh, Bordeaux again. The, you know, through the 70s were all from time yeah. for them uh, yeah. and uh, so that was a very interesting time to set and Burgundy in 84 was still very old fashioned still a lot of very rustic and uh, uh, wines that are nowhere near as pure as what they are today so I saw that whole uh, old fashioned thing and, and the new tra uh, transition over the years after that so hmm. so it was good to, to see that and develop a palate and understanding so my wines actually really do reflect a European style a lot in their elegance and their soil definition, you know, geology definition, yeah. long, fragrant characters that age very gracefully and for a long time, with the oak completely integrated and, and no fat oiliness and whatever, which, which some people like to do. And do you think that has, that's been something that you've brought to Darenberg that's evolved? You know, is, it, is that slightly different from how your dad would have made? Um, funnily things? enough, Dad always made wines that were not high in alcohol and were not over-extracted and, and were never oily either, mainly because he was there was no machine harvesters around, so you just had to get it all picked by hand, and it takes quite a long time to pick everything yeah, by hand. Yeah. So you'd start early, you know, before the grapes were ripe in some vineyards, you know, and uh, and you sort of just had to do that. And and then if it came in cool and whatever, you just kept picking, 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 so the whole vintage was elegant. And then occasionally, you know, it'd be a hot spill would come through and there'd be some that were riper and whatever, and that's how it was. And, you know, usually sold those off in bulk, actually. Right. Um, yeah. um, Max Schubert, who's the head, was the head winemaker for Penfolds, who, who created Grange uh, yeah. uh, back in the 50s um, just before he died he said to dad Barry I've got to take you and your son to lunch I want to tell you how I make Grange because <laughs> out of all the bulk wine that we'd bought from anyone in Australia Darenberg was the, the wine closest to Grange 
and, wow. and so it probably meant that quite a bit of Derenberg went into grains in those days uh, yeah. back because we didn't really sell much in the bottle in the 50s it was really in the later 50s and 60s we really started to bottle our own wine so so we were just uh, bulk wine was a very common thing to be selling mm. of course even even in Bordeaux and uh, and everywhere Burgundy negotiates and whatever yeah. they were selling wine in, in bulk it was shipped out in, in wooden barrels of course to be bottled uh, under the whatever label you know Lafitte mm. maybe if you're lucky or something yeah, you know yeah. and uh, and uh, and you know, wasn't in control by the by the uh, wineries until uh, you know till that sort of period in the in the later part of the 19th century uh, uh, 20th century I'll get it right yeah yeah um if I say the word productivity to you what does that mean in a, a wine context and what does what does that mean for your role as an as an artist within within wine um well productivity obviously means um, that you are making the best, uh, most expensive wine, in a way, out of uh, that bit of dirt. Um, mm. uh, uh, and it may be, when I say best, most expensive, best might mean um, actually yield quite high and turn it into a cheap wine, but that's the best we can get out of that vineyard. No point winding it right down, make, trying to make a $100 wine. And, and it's not going to get there and you're getting low yields and so you keep declassifying it all the time. So you're better off pumping it up a little bit more, that vineyard, getting it, getting it working a little bit faster and, and getting a yield uh, that actually matches uh, the, uh, the price point that you're going to be selling it at. Yeah. And, and, and then it's, you're being productive then in that vineyard rather than being, um, uh, I suppose, making a loss from the vineyard all the time. Uh, um, most of our vineyards we work with actually are all on the higher end, so that's not a very common practice that I have to have a problem with. Um, and so... Uh, trying to get the most out of the vineyard is what, of course, I was describing earlier on in that we were no fertiliser and uh, lower amounts of irrigation and, and low inputs altogether, which, yeah. uh, which is decreased the price of the, the, uh, the grape production, uh, but, but also increases the quality of the grape so that we can then value add and uh, have it uh, higher end. And, 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 and tasting through every barrel... And picking all the best barrels of each of the best vineyards for your best wines is also part of productivity to get the best out of the best yeah. of the best. Yeah. You know? And uh, but uh, at the end of the day, you know, to to keep your family asset going and uh, make sure that uh, it's there for the next generation, it's got to come down to that it's making some sort of money or you're building up some asset worth. Yeah, uh, yeah. which is the same thing because you know profitability then turn back into the company is going to still be increasing the assets so I suppose that that's it and and, and and you can you can add value of course not only in, in the production sense is what I was just describing but in the in the marketing sense as well yeah. and, the, and the labeling yeah. and the names and the quirkiness and the cube that I was talking about yeah, yeah. all of these things will add value to the to the, the company and, and the wines uh, beyond just the, the quality of the wines. And it sounds like a big part of productivity then for you is is that sort of um, agility of being able to taste regularly, make decisions and sort of, you know, change whether it's that higher price point or slightly lower price point and kind of be light on your feet in the way that you make wine and deal with that stuff. You really have to be very much um, flowing with the season mm. and you don't know 
how that season's going to evolve until you start doing your blending and they're two years old and you're, yeah, you're yeah. just looking at yeah. every barrel and going, well, that vineyard really worked that year. It was perfect timing because there's little heat waves that go through and cold spills and bits of rain maybe and whatever. Yeah. And they all interfere with the grapes because they're all at different stages. The grapes, they don't all ripen on the same day. So so they're all at different stages when that heat wave comes through. So so they all show off their different characters and, uh, and you can... Um, uh, make the best out of them by, by looking at every barrel and and, uh, and achieve the best result that way. Mm. And 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 I think that's why the dead arm is so sought after, is because of that attention to detail and making sure that it's the best barrels of the best vineyards and there is no oiliness and it will age for forty fifty years yeah, if you get yeah. you know the good yeah. vintages. So so and that's great wine is measured by a few things. It's measured obviously by its Balance in the oak isn't aggressive, and and its fruit is good, and it's got some sort of concentration, and 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 it has some sort of sense of place or style, uh, but also it has to age. Very important that it has to age. Great reputations are not built on wines that are ready to drink right now, mm, and yeah. so so that's why I'm uh, fastidious in making sure that there's no shriveled fruit, and that we're not making oily wines we're making wines with yeah. fragrance and length and structure and, and ageability but they can still be drunk young as well Chester Osborne there the chief winemaker at Downenberg Wines in Adelaide Australia telling us that winemaking has so much to teach us about productivity who knew so it's about making the best of what we have using the right tools telling good stories and focusing on legacy and also there's something really nice to reflect on and think about there where he was saying, yeah, you want to be known for the wines that are going to age well, but also sometimes you want to drink them when they're young as well. And I think youth is quite a nice little segue onto our next Beyond Busy guest for this productivity part of Beyond Busy 100. We're talking to Iman Ismail. So Iman left her job at quite a young age and with a toddler in tow, set up her own copywriting agency. Uh, Ink House and I asked her the question of was it daunting for her the idea of going solo setting up her own thing at such a young age it was extremely daunting uh, but it was also really exciting and exhilarating and liberating and no one's ever asked me that question before it's such a good question I must have been 26 when I set up Ink House and I remember feeling like life is only going to get harder. I'm only, I'm only going to get, I'm only going to have more responsibilities. I'm only going to have more bills to pay. Um, so if I want to start a business, now is the time. This is going to be the best time um, mm. for me to do that. I remember really clearly feeling like that and thinking that and then just going for it. And I never really stopped to think about my age. The only time that I have, if I'm completely honest, is when right at the beginning, I'd have conversations with people. And I guess, again, two years ago, I wasn't um, really, I wasn't as established as I am now. Not that, you know, I'm not Marie Folio or anything, but but I I wasn't as established and trusted as I am now and I used to have a lot of silly conversations with people and I used to think this person is just taking the mick out of me because they can see that I'm young and I'm a woman 
and you know I'm I'm visibly Muslim as well I am from the BME community as well on top of that and they probably think I'm a lot younger than I am because and I don't say this in a good way. Um, I so want to look my age, but you know, people meet me and I'm 28 now, but people meet me and think I'm like 19, 20, (laughs) highly frustrating. So I often used to think people are just don't take me seriously. Um, but actually once they started working with me, they took me very seriously. Um, you've even got that on your website somewhere, haven't you? It says something like I am older than I look. Don't worry. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, and it's, and to be honest, it's taken me some time to kind of get over that, but I feel like now that um I've been doing this for a couple of years and now that um I was this might sound this might sound a bit um I don't know braggy I hope it doesn't but now that kind of my reputation kind of precedes me like people generally come to me and have heard about me from someone else or I've been referred Mm. to them from someone else so we don't even have you know weird conversations anymore um I feel much more kind of um in control of the situation and and like I am respected so that was the only I think struggle for me in terms of in terms of my age when it comes to the copywriting itself do you have a secret source or a particular formula that you follow or like is there is there a thing that you think that you do really well in the way that you use words that makes your work stand out well the first thing I would say is that um people usually think that copywriting is an an art and that it's a creative um form and I guess in some ways it is but really copywriting is a science so it's full of formulas and um systems and and processes and and ways to do things so yes I definitely follow um all of those that help to make my copywriting successful um, and effective but I think the main thing is that uh, I'm not afraid to be myself I'm not afraid to inject my own voice into my copy. Um, Like if you join my newsletter, you'll either love it or hate it because it is just, (laughs) it's just me. Um, I, you, you will gauge very quickly whether you want to work with me and whether, you know, we'll gel. And so I think that's, that's what I do well. Nice. Um, And where, where do you find all those formulas from and the kind of scientific side of it? Because I'm, I'm really curious about that because, I'm probably, I don't know, even though I write business books, I think of it as a creative thing. And I think of it as being more artistic than scientific, which is probably completely wrong of me by the sounds of it. <laughs> but um, you know, where, where do you find those those formulas from in terms of um, email newsletters and, and copywriting kind of science? Uh, books, books and courses. And I've done so many. And, you know, there are some people who are, so against people um, taking courses and who think that courses are, are, you know, just scams and whatever else. But um, honestly, there are things that you need to learn um, about copywriting in order to do it well. And the reason I say it's a science is because um, this isn't like, I guess, creative writing where you are really kind of expressing yourself. Copywriting is about the art of persuasion um it's about persuading someone to do what you want them to do and that involves you know sales marketing psychology all sorts of things um and so there are best practices and i think um you can definitely stray from those best practices but you need to know what the rules are in order to break them and yeah. I actually have my own online copywriting course for business owners. Um, and I created that because I had a lot of business owners who um, would come to me 
and they were right at the beginning of the business journey and they didn't have the budget really to hire not just the copywriters to hire anyone really so um I felt I found that I was turning a lot of people away which didn't feel great and so I decided to um turn my face-to-face workshops that I'd been doing into um into an online course so yes I believe in online courses I have taken so many I am in um I mean I'm always learning even now I'm signed up to a couple of courses that I actually implement and go through and you know um create time on my schedule and my calendar weekly to to progress through these courses and I'm also Mm. in um in a couple of membership communities with uh, and a mastermind as well with copywriters that are just so much more um successful than me and who are so much smarter than me um because I I just my philosophy in life is to never ever be the smartest person in the room I always want (laughs) to be around people I want to be around people that make me feel really dumb because I just want to learn from them I want to learn everything that they know and I'm so lucky to be in a number of communities where that is where that is the case and there are people who are where I want to be in five years and you know they share their strategies they share their um, mistakes and their lessons learned and um, again they even just sharing their copy like when they put up their copy to be reviewed by our coaches first thing I do is check it out and I'm reading through it and I am I'm going through it and I'm seeing what's what's good and what's working and what's not and like you said earlier on about signing up to other people's email address uh, email newsletters I have an entire inbox dedicated to um, signing up to other people's newsletters. <laughs> so mm. just seeing um, what other people are doing with their email and analyzing that um, and being really intentional about analyzing that as well and seeing what's, yeah. you know, which emails made me want to open them, which subject lines made me want to actually open the email and why and what worked, what worked, what didn't work. Um, you know, what are, people's newsletters doing what are they talking about um all that good stuff so yeah i get a lot of inspiration from from other copywriters too so from manchester following the rules and the science around copywriting with iman ismail and her company ink house we move to the north pole and the south pole and everest with someone who has definitely made up his own rules as he goes along so this is erling kager He was the first person to complete the three poles challenge. So he was one of, he was the first person actually um, with his partner, uh, Borge Osland, to ever reach the North Pole unsupported in 1990. And in 1992-93, he completed the first unsupported and solo expedition to the South Pole, uh, covering 814 miles in 50 days. No contact with the outside world. And uh, as you can imagine, was featured on the cover of Time magazine International when he returned in March 1993. And then 1994, he summited Mount Everest. So he's the first person ever to complete this remarkable three poles challenge. And Erling and I sat down in the offices of Penguin on the Strand, where he was promoting his book, Philosophy for Polar Explorers. And what you're going to hear in the background here is about the most un- exploratory expeditionist kind of uh, sound because there's just like some people drilling in the next room so had this real kind of bathos to it but um, Erling talks about some really interesting stuff and I started by uh, asking him about where he got his incredible ability to set his own goals and to make a life for himself that was just so interesting and full of 
challenges and experiences. So here's my conversation with Erling Kager. Yeah, I think you know it's 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 I think you know quite often when you are you know as I said or also start off to the, with a book that kind of writing when you are a kid you have all these visions and you know absolutely or very few limitations uh, about what you can do. Um, at least most kids will have you know have those dreams, not all, all kids. And, uh, and but later in life. You know, we're going from having, you know, to kind of 360 degrees horizon in your life to get more and more narrowed in. Mm. And, and uh, I remember I went to law school. And, of course, it's very privileged. It's very main, main clever people. But, you know, when it started out, people had all these ideas. But after, you know, finished law school, the biggest dream was kind of, you know, my male friends, the biggest dream was to kind of find a wife that were kind of looking like a mother and find a house <laughs> in the neighborhood I grew up and hope to become a senior partner at a big law firm. Right. So it kind of, you know, it's kind of, you know, that was kind of the ultimate dreams they had in life. And, and these are the most privileged people. And, you know, so they are underestimating themselves and the possibilities mm, of having right. life. And, of course, you may reach all these dreams when you're 35 or 38 or 42 years old. And, and that's, you know, that's unbearable. Uh, to reach all the goals at that age and again as I said you know no wonder people you know claim their lives to be feel short afterwards yeah but also I think you know in 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 I think this comes down to actually most people and I'm, I'm not thinking that you know everybody should do something fantastic in life or extraordinary or beat records and you know blah 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 that would be very naive but you know challenge themselves a little bit and don't trust others and maybe not trust their own kind of opinions about themselves that you know that they are not it's not possible to do yeah. things that feel extraordinary in their lives yeah. so that's also one reason I wrote this book because um, uh, I wanted to kind of show um, what you can do despite of not only because of. Yeah. Um, there's another line in the book that says, I think it says, um, no one achieved anything great by being happy and cozy. That's, Is that right? that's for sure. And, you know, that's the thing. It's great to be happy and cozy. But, you know, that's, <laughs> that's I think, you know, that sense like um, happiness as this kind of a daily kind of minute or hour to hour kind of feeling of happiness that, you know, so many people say, you know, that's the dream to be happy throughout the whole day, day after day. That's very naive, and in that sense, happiness is overrated, because life is not about being happy as often as possible. It's uh, and also, you know, quite often, uh, when you feel happy, maybe you are not happy, and then you feel unhappy. Maybe you actually are happy, because you know, happiness is really hard to grasp and to define. Just like for me, as I said, I had three teenage, I had three three daughters. And when they were tiny, small kids, uh, they were screaming a lot like any other kid. Mm. And, you know, sometimes day, night after night, I had to carry a kid back and forth uh, uh, the floor in the flat and trying to get the kid to sleep. And minutes and hours passed by and I was absolutely weird out. And so was the mother of the kids, of course. And it was terrible. 
uh, and almost like torture that you don't get any sleep or hardly any sleep during the night and then you have to work throughout the day and you wear yourself absolutely out but today I think about those nights as some of the happiest moments with my kids because right. of yeah. the closeness to the kid and that you really made the best you know, best effort so the kid should have a good time although mm. she was screaming so you know it's um so it's I think you know it's I think it's I think it's kind of this pursuit of, of happiness on a daily basis is uh, is is a huge misunderstanding yeah do you, do you focus more on meaning rather than happiness? Because it sounds like, like that story for me is a story of meaning, right? Like those Sto- sleepless th- nights are really important because of what they achieve. Yeah, right? not on the meaning, but kind yeah. of meanings yeah. in life. It's uh, it for sure. And trying to do meaningful things. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, those meaningful things are, you know, really rough. It's hard. Uh, life is hard. Life is rough and you know, it's brutal. And to have an idea it's not going to be, um, you know, then we also miss out on the most beautiful parts in life. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So I think, you know, in terms of happiness, I think, you know, I believe in this old idea that, you know, if you have lived a happy life, that has to be considered when your life has fin- been finished. Mm-hmm. Because then you can see it in a broad perspective, but see it from day to day is uh, meaningless. Yeah. And there's a line where you say, don't. Don't chase happiness, let the happiness chase you as well, which I really like. Yeah, I think, you know, if you chase success or if you chase uh, happiness, uh, it's not very likely you will be successful or have a happy life. Yeah. Mm. Um, Some of it has to come after you. Mm. Absolutely. What was the starting point for you on, obviously there's three very huge journeys, but the starting point on your journey to be an explorer what, what, what was interesting to you about that what was the was there a kind of one light bulb moment or was it something that you always kind of knew that you wanted to do I think you know uh, you know life changing moment was to be born in the sense that we <laughs> in the sense that we're all born explorers and uh, when I look at my kids I had three daughters and uh, you know before uh, they could walk or talk they want to climb and as soon as they learn how to walk they just walked out of the house and started to wonder what was, you know, between themselves and the horizon, and soon after, you know, what was beyond the horizon. So I think that's, you know, that's, you know, the spirit of exploration is uh, a part of our nature. Yeah. And of course, as you know, get into kindergarten, friends, families, expectations, schools, then it's dimi- diminishing. Uh, but it never goes away. We all have it. Uh, nothing goes to zero before you're dead. Uh, but somehow I kept it, you know, more than most of the people. Yeah. So it's uh, somehow I think you never start being an explorer, but you know, we slowly quit being an explorer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And there's a there's a little graph in your book which is kind of like a crisscross, which is sort of pursuing your the hopes and dreams that you have on one axis, and then your ability to pursue them and the yeah. Somehow it's a bit on, sad, on sad to see as you know. Yeah. When you're, ki- when you're a kid, you're having all these unbelievable dreams. Of course, mm. some are, you know, uh, very naive. I'm, one of my dreams was to be a better boxer than uh, Muhammad Ali and a better footballer than Johan Cruyff. And of course, you know, but that's, you know, that was never going to happen. But, you know, it's beautiful to have those dreams. Mm. And as you grow up, um, you know, the possibilities for realize many of the dreams are increasing. But the will to go for those dreams are decreasing. Yeah, 
So that's why I made this graph uh, in my book. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Is that something that you actively uh, try and pursue and work on yourself? Are you somebody who is always trying to keep that childhood naivety and keep that will to pursue your dreams? Yeah, I think so. I think it's important. I, you know, to be childish is uh, not important. I think that's silly when grown-ups are you know childish. But you should keep that spirit from your childhood yeah, yeah. Um, with you. Um, and but it's not like I'm trying to like you know to keep it up. Uh, it's more like. Um, I have this strong belief that you need to make your life more difficult than necessary. Um, obviously, if I had been born in um, uh, southern Sudan, it would have been different. Yeah. Or if I had been born in a very poor neighborhood here in England, it would have been different, etc. But, you know, for most people, uh, they actually need to make their lives more difficult, I think, to make, to make them interesting. And, of course, George Mallory, he very famously said around 1920 that, uh, why do you climb Everest? And he said, uh, uh, because it's there. And, you know, <laughs> it's a great answer. It doesn't say much about, uh, uh, you know, uh, a proper reason. But it's, I think it says quite a bit about George Mallory. Yeah. And yeah. his kind of, you know, his attitude that it's very few things in life you actually have to do. Uh, if your mother is kind, you don't even have to get out of bed because you know she will eventually make food for you. So in that sense, uh, I think you know throughout every day you need to you know when you have to choose between something which is easy to do, simple you know simple challenges, uh, or something which is much more difficult. Um, I think you know you should not all the time, but you know quite often you should go for the most difficult options in life. Yeah. <laughs> So there you go. Go and climb Everest because it's there. So there's a, a lesson that we can transfer to so many things that we just need to have the audacity to do in our work. And we're going to stay on that same theme of navigating uncharted territories, but also switch it up and talk leadership. So my next guest is L. David Marquet. He's most famous for his book and TED Talk and story uh, called Turn the Ship Around, which looks at his uh, particular experience of being a trained U.S. Navy SEAL and U.S. Navy SEAL commander. And he spent all of his life really training to be the commander on this particular boat. And then at short notice, he's given a different boat and he's got a whole different set of rules and a whole different playbook. And he doesn't know it as well as all the people on the boat. So what it teaches him is about the division of labor and how leadership is really about how we best empower the people who report to us and get them to really focus on the decisions because they're the ones on the front line. They're the ones who know what needs to happen. And then he talks about this whole interplay between the doing and the thinking. Um, and he talks also about white collar versus blue collar here. So this conversation is really interesting. I actually found it quite difficult to keep up with L. David Marquet's just remarkable mind. And it was kind of all over the map. And I really had, I had like a narrative structure I wanted to um, stick to, as I often do with these conversations. And he was like determined to just kind of, you know, say whatever was on his mind that moment and just, you know, uh, darting all over the place with really interesting ideas. And I was really doing my best to try and um, pin him down to the, the structure and the kind of narrative that I had. 
But also I was just in the moment and just going with the flow with it as well. So here is him talking about just the whole idea of how do we divide up labour? How do we best organise work and what leadership means in that context? So it's, very, so it's hard. The industrial age solved the problem by saying, okay, we're going to outsource those two different kinds of work to two different groups of people. One group, which we're going to call the white-collar leadership management salaried people, are going to do the thinking or the blue work. Another group of people, which we're going to call workers, labor, unionized, hourly people, are going to do the doing work. So the deciders choose what the doers were going to, are going to do. And the problem is now, or the challenge now is, first of all, that's a terrible life. If you just get told what to do all the time. But it's this phase we've gone through with the Industrial Revolution. Now what we what I think we want is we need the doers. We want the doers to be the deciders. Let the doers be the deciders. Mm. So which is actually all of us. So the people doing the work should be able to make decisions about the work to as much as possible. But what that means is that this group this group which hitherto just said, do what you're told, have a narrow focus. Now I need to oscillate. So I need narrow, narrow, narrow. Monday through Thursday, narrow. Then Friday, we're going to back up. We're going to have a broad focus. Mm. That's the hard part. That's where we need to be agile. So we need to make it easier to stop. Hey, we've been so good chopping down these trees, so good printing, doing print films, so good renting DVDs that we just keep doing it. No, we're going to put time out and now we're going to think about it. But you also have to make it easy to get, okay, enough thinking, enough contemplation, enough, now let's get back into the doing. Yeah. So both ways. I've seen, we see organizations stuck on both sides. Yeah. So what is, do you have advice for organizations if you feel like an organization is stuck too much in doing and they're not, and this would be the sort of, the classic sort of stories of, you know, Kodak not embracing yeah. digital photography and, yeah. and various others and blockbuster video and all that. So like if you're stuck in that cycle of doing and you're not necessarily, you know, thinking about the broader picture, right. how can how, how do companies break out of that and, and vice versa? So uh, at, at the strategic level, your strategy should be a hypothesis. It, it, it shouldn't be here's here's our plan, period. It should be our hypothesis is that if we do this, we're going to have these outcomes. And then what are we going to learn? And then there should be expiration dates. So every time you make a decision, put an expiration date on it. So we're going to decide to do print film. We're going to decide to do streaming video. We're going to decide to make a new app, whatever. Uh, and in six months, we're going to reevaluate. So you, you want to put a marker in the calendar yeah. to, to pause and raise your head. Because once you get going, you'll be so happy and you'll be so good at it. But it might be irrelevant mm. for the marketplace. Uh, at the sort of operation, like quarterly goals, com companies often write quarterly goals, but we say, how about what are we going to learn this quarter? So, oh, we're going to do this, we're going to raise revenue, we're going to ship this product. But rarely do I see, and we have a deliberate plan to learn more about ABC. You look at 
uh, Bezos's first annual report for Amazon back in '98. He writes, "This is what we've achieved, and we have much to learn about internet mar- selling things mm-hmm. on the internet." Right. And he talks about it. In the meantime, I got Jack Welch's GE report. It's all hubris, and this is what we've done. And there's, mm-hmm. there's. Uh, nothing in there about, and here's what we have to learn more about. Mm, yeah. And now look what happened. At, at the time, I don't know, I, you know, obviously Amazon was a pipsqueak and GE was a giant. And now, let's see what happened. But then it's also, so coming back to that thing I was saying before about you're shining a light really on some of the games that, uh, sort of the subtext games that are played, right? So the subtext game of that is look at how great we are so yeah. that the share, because the game is instill confidence amongst shareholders and actually you know that doesn't that approach doesn't serve innovation or thinking differently or yeah i or call, kind of embracing any kind of vulnerability basically is like exactly thing, isn't it? yeah and i call that and, and by the way i don't think it actually instills confidence i i don't i don't think anyone's tricked by some braggadocio or maybe they were but I think I think many people are. Okay, points, all right. right. Well, that'll be podcast number two. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe you're right. Um, I take it back. But um, I guess they wouldn't say if it didn't work. But here's the deal. We, I call that your be good self. Yeah. And and it happens at a corporate level. It happens at individuals. And this, the idea is I got to protect this image that we're good. And that I deserve my salary. That I that I'm not gonna. I shouldn't be fired. And it really gets down to that. Like I'm I'm afraid. Mm. And the problem is the be good self is resistant to admitting that we could be better, at seeking feedback, which is what we need if we're going to play the long game and and say well. Three years from now, do we want to be doing exactly the same as we're doing? No, no, we should be do- interacting with clients better than. Yeah. Well, that means at some point we need to say we can be do it better than what we did. Oh, but the problem is now for the doers of the deciders, it was us who chose it to be that way. So now I'm having to question myself, mm. and uh, I have to rethink decisions that we made, and that only comes from a safe environment. And this was this is so anathema. As I was a nuclear submarine commander. The whole thing was about scaring the shit out of people. Yeah. We got a nuclear yeah. reactor. We got enemies trying to kill us. We got, I mean, it's tense, dicey stuff. It, it's, it is physically, uh, there are physical um, dangers. But we would then perpetuate emotional scariness on our people. Mm. And and you don't have to, you don't provoke people into being brilliant and 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 being great. People are great. No act of greatness, I, I don't think, was because someone was ordered to be great. So L. David Marquet, there, the author of Turn the Ship Around, and I love that whole thing about just noticing the subtext of so much of the stuff that we do at work and the games that we're playing, even without realizing it sometimes. So I think that's a really nice link into our next guest, David McQueen. Dave's someone I've known for a long time. We have really interesting discussions on 
on WhatsApp. And also there's always usually something, I always usually find something to say when he puts something up on LinkedIn because he is a contrarian, he's a provocateur, like things that really chime with me in the way that I think. And I've always really admired him for that. And he's telling some really interesting stories here. What I, what I love about Dave is that he has, through his work as a leadership coach and a speaker, he's been able to take some of his ideas and his outspokenness and also his huge bags of empathy into some of the biggest, most interesting companies in the world. So here he tells some stories about Facebook, about Uber, and about really speaking truth to power. So let's go straight into this. It's Dave McQueen. So here's, here's an interesting story. When I was on Twitter, and I've left that cesspit now to, to <laughs> <laughs> me too. Kinder, kinder environments to my head. Um, my head of year uh, reconnected, and um, it was it's really funny. He kind of like sent a message. He goes, "Oh, you remind me of a student at a school that I was at." who was always quite outspoken and willing to challenge them. And I was like, where did you teach? And he was like, Harrow. And then I looked at his name. I was going, oh, my God, that was my ex-head of year. We, <laughs> we, we met up and we had this fantastic lunch. And he just started sharing some examples for me of being in, being kicked out of geography because the geography teacher <laughs> hated the fact that I said that, you know, um, uh, around colonialism and exploitation of resources in Africa. You know, he told me that I got, uh, that I remembered that I was in a detention that I refused to attend uh, in school because I said that there was a, a, a Holocaust in Congo before there was one in Germany and the mm-hmm. lost absolutely lost his head. And and he said there were always things, and he said, but you always did it quite politely. And he said, I think that's what upset the teachers because you were never angry. <laughs> I got angry with friends. I never got angry with teachers. Like with friends, I'll lose my stuff. But with teachers, I'm not going to, you know, it was always a, for me, it was always wiser not to do that with, with adults. Um, mm. I, I grew up with this sense of, of inquiry, this sense of just because you've told me that it's there doesn't necessarily mean that's right. Um, you know, I, I, I grew up quite religious as a, as a, um, in a Christian family as well, where for me, you know, there were lots of things that I was told was the right way. And, you know, I, again, as I said, I, although I um, define as agnostic rather than religious now, I, I respect people who will come from a background because I understand the kind of safety and comfort religion brings, but I will question everything, whether you are yeah. Muslim, Christian, Buddhist, or I'm questioning. Why do you believe, why do you believe in that one God instead of the other 3,999 that are available? Why do you want your behavior shaped around something that says thou shalt not, as opposed to thou shalt? You know, uh, for years in my church, you know, there were individuals who just didn't want me anywhere near young people because I would be like, OK, so, yeah, you may go that you disagree with homosexuality, but you're talking about a person here, somebody who's sitting in front of you, somebody's son or daughter who is uh, bisexual, gay, whatever. And, and you have an issue with them because in one book of the Bible or because somebody repeats it every day, you're going to treat that person as less than human. I said that doesn't make sense to all the other principles you have around love. Um, so you can imagine the joy that I think people found when I, I, I was going to leave church and no longer to people with with my contrarian views. But then again, it's in business. And again, you know, when I went to Uber, I basically sat down with a group of people and I just said, look, uh, I'm here to have an open conversation. I said, the guy who founded your company is trash. Everybody knows that. You're, you're, he was very toxic. The environment with the, the with the boys and, you know, all that kind of stuff, it was very toxic. It was, you know, 
It did. It, it made for a quick way of being able to make a buck, but it wasn't very respectful to women, to people of color, to the drivers who were usually going to be from poorer backgrounds to make it. And I said, it was trash. I said, let's just be honest about mm. that. And I said, and that culture is permeated. And even though you've got a new CEO in there, it is about how do you take ownership? And I'm not going to make any bones about that. You know, if your boss is trash, your boss is trash. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, people were like, oh, okay. I said, you don't have to say it. I said, but I'm I'm on record. I can say it because I'm not emotionally invested in this, but I'm going to challenge you. Yeah. You're here. Although, although the next conversation is, uh, here's my invoice. <laughs> <laughs> but it's the same. You know, I earlier in the year, I went to Facebook. And I said to the people who were in Facebook, I said, look, you know, as far as I'm concerned, the senior leadership of Facebook is trash. When I think mm. about Zuckerberg and when I think about um, the woman who wrote Lean In, her name's gone for me now. Um, Cheryl Sandberg. Sandberg. I said, it's trash. I said that Lean In stuff was not, anybody who wasn't a middle-class white woman come from a privileged background, that meant nothing. That meant absolutely <laughs> nothing. You honest about Lean In. Are you mad? When people are being told that you're too aggressive or this is it, non-professional, come on now, what are you smoking? And he said, you know, Mark, Mark has built a, a business which basically was snooping on women. That's what you've built your company from. Own that history, because he doesn't necessarily determine the future. Own that history, know you're working for an organization that has that as its base, and then you decide what are you going to do in terms of your work. I said, I make no point. Yeah. I said, you're still going to pay yeah. me because you asked me to come here. You told me to speak my truth. I'm speaking. <laughs> you know, and likewise, there, you know, I got a lot of stick, Graham, because um, I, I'm, I, I'm quite outspoken about like the Queen's Awards. So I, you know, I've been shortlisted twice to be, to, to be put forward for an MBE once from, well, twice for my youth work. And I said, no. I said, I don't bow before royalty. I just don't believe in it. I don't, I said, I'm a Republican. I don't believe in the monarchy. And people are like, oh, my God, but this is not for you. It's for the young people. I'm saying, you're talking trash. Do you think a young person who is just worried about free school meals and making sure that he can get to the end of the week and worrying about the trauma that his mum is going to make a difference when I walk in there and go, hi, my name's Dave McQueen, MBE. They'll be like, what the hell does that mean? They're like, did you play ball? I'm, I'm a member of the British Empire now. Right. So, so, that makes so you, should, you should feel good about that. Come on. So I, I <laughs> but again, as I said, I always do it from a place of love. I'm very... I'm very outspoken. I'm very opinionated, but it doesn't mean that your opinion doesn't matter. Mm. I I would happily, I, I say this while I'm biting my cheeks, I would happily sit in a room with somebody like Nigel Farage and, and learn mad social impulse control, not to jump over there and smack him in the mouth. Because I still think that with freedom of speech, and I mean, his tends to lean towards, and other people tend to lean towards hate speech, but I would sit in that room and I would still listen and I would still have my proposition. Because sometimes yeah. you have to recognize that how you represent is bigger than yourself. And so again, you know, I'll be provocative and I will give really strong arguments. And, you know, I grew up reading loads of books about debating. So I know how to debate. I will debate until I run out of breath. But I will also create that space that when we're in that room that you don't feel disrespected by me. Get upset with the idea and not the individual. Dave McQueen there. So Dave mentioned being provocative and we're going to now talk to the person with the most provocative business name that we're going to feature in the whole of Beyond Busy 100 and that's Steph Saul Williams. She is the founder of Fuck Being Humble. She's an entrepreneur that I've really admired over the last few years and what she's done is built this incredible tribe of millennial women who are interested in self-promotion 
interested in how to gain confidence at work and she is just a master storyteller she runs event events that are kind of like a homage to her upbringing of 90s r&b and hip-hop so they're called things like bitch better have my money and big up yourself and i just love her style i love the cheekiness of it and it reminds me so much of the early days of productivity ninja actually i think that's really why i really chime with Steph's work. So here we're going to talk about her origin story, how she came to bring about uh, her business, Fuck Being Humble. The company is called Fuck Being Humble and the book, book is called Fuck Being Humble. And then you've got these workshop names, Let Me Blow Your Mind, Ain't No Shame, Bitch Better Have My Money, which yeah. I just love. But so firstly, where did those come from? But also, have they ever been a barrier to you? Because they stand out and, and it really sort of shows me that uh, whilst you might have been on the project management side in advertising, you, you've clearly learned how to get people's attention and learned how to tell stories. Um, but have you ever found that using the F word in your company name has kind of has it closed the door for any companies wanting to hire you or things like that? Oh, this is such a great question. I'm glad you asked this. So I think, first of all, they say that your businesses and your brands are an extension of you. And whilst I don't want to uh, paint a picture that I go around swearing at everyone and, um, you know, con constantly churning out these motivational statements, I do think that, you know, whether it was subconsciously or consciously, for being humble is very much me, my personality, and not necessarily the message, but the way in which it's delivered in the sense that I am very much like, if you've got a talent, then you go out there and you use it. Because there are so many people who are from disadvantaged backgrounds that don't get those opportunities and that will get fall through the cracks. And, it, and I hate seeing that. And so rather than sitting on something that you've got and that you are amazing at and just wishing and hoping that everything comes to you, go out and get it. I, I'm not, I'm, I'm a, I call myself like a tough love, a, a tough love agony and careers coach because I'm not going <laughs> to be like, you're a boss babe and shoot for the stars and everything will happen. Like that, if you look at my Instagram account, F being humble LDN, that is not what you get from me. It's, straight talking advice on how you can make the most of your talent and your skills. And so I think, you know, I actually had like a few names I played around with and I just remember saying it. And again, this is that interesting thing about telling your friends or being surrounded by people that maybe are going to give you some advice versus the advice that you actually need to hear. So when I told my friends that I was going to run a business called Foot Being Humble, naturally, they were scared for me. And I <laughs> had to convince them. And, and I was like, I just can't think of anything else that has the punch. And they were like, yeah, but you could intimidate quiet people. And I was like, yeah, but I, I think I can make this work. Like, I, I need to stop people in the tracks. I want to be different. And I'm so glad that I didn't, although again, I appreciate their feedback, like, uh, cling on to their reservations, because it has absolutely been the driving success of the book of, of the book mm. but also the business and and everything I stand for there's no way the things that have happened in the past two years would have happened if I had called myself shoot for the stars like there's just yeah. no way yeah. and I think on the names of the event so 
I, when I started writing the, um, I wrote some form of a proposal. It was like a 78 page keynote where I just basically like offloaded all my thoughts that were in my head. And at the same time, I was listening to an R&B hip hop playlist that I like, it's my favorite genre of music, usually 90s because I'm one of the kids from the 90s that mm-hmm. appreciates that music and will only listen to that music and say it's the best music ever. And as I was listening to it, you know, Missy Elliott was coming on and she was saying, ain't no shame, get your head in the game. And then I was listening to Eve and Gwen Stefani and they were singing like, let me blow your mind. And I was like, how cool would it be if I just took what I'm listening to right now and I put that into career development and I I kind of broke the traditional norms of what professional development looked like and I, I shook things up a bit. And that is actually where it's born from. And it's so, I remember that day so vividly. I was in the Ace Hotel, like lots of other East London creatives, writing away and and that, those, that music came on. And it's massively been a thing that people have connected with. In terms of how it's helped the business, I think when I explain that they're based on my 90s R&B favourite songs, people love it. But in terms <laughs> of SEO, it's not ideal because... Uh, of course, it doesn't yeah. actually show it up. So that's something that you know. Again, you know, without knowing running a business and understanding SEO, I would never have known. But they were a big, they're a big personality of the brand. So in terms of like the names and the choices, I don't regret any of that. And I'm as much as I get trolled um, and get some messages, and I get told how I should and shouldn't be communicating this message. I'm really proud. I went for it, and it's a really good example of you know making a stand and creating a brand name that is not only disruptive but it is I say to people it's a mindset that I want you to adopt so whether or not you verbally use it whether or not you get a tattoo of it or you put stickers on your laptop with that message you can adopt that message in your head and you can interpret that and action that however you want to do it but I've had people message me say I was I was in a meeting and I, I really wasn't sure if to do it. And then I just said to myself, no, foot being humble, I'm going to do this. And I put myself forward for it. And that's what I'm living for. Like that, that those sorts of bits of feedback are amazing for me. And I just, yeah, like I say, I don't think I'd have got that if I'd have gone for something a bit more simpler and um, conservative. I think in terms of whether it's held me back or whether I found barriers, the first thing is that Instagram, Facebook and Twitter won't let me advertise. So the irony of building a brand where I actually can't um, self-promote is so funny. If for some reason it blocks me because it says profanities, even though the the fuck has got an asterisk, it won't let me advertise. I actually really need to just speak to someone at Facebook and be like, please let me. But the flip side (laughs) of that is... Please let me give you my money. Please let me. Just let me do it. Um, The flip side of that is the following is organic. And I'm even Mm. prouder of that. And I'm, you know, as someone who has worked on the advertising side and knows that you don't make a viral campaign unless you spend a shit ton of money on it and you get it in the places where it's seen, you know, people have, you know, seeked out fuck being humble and that's how it's grown. And that's actually even more than, um, you know, a goal for me and, and something that I'm really proud of. But that's obviously been an issue. In terms of getting hired or books or working booked or working with clients, there was one instant with quite a big brand who said, we absolutely love you. We'd love to book you for International Women's Day. We just can't 
um, swear. So you wouldn't be able to say your brand name. And <laughs> and I was like, it was a big opportunity. And I was like, oh, like okay. So maybe I just run the talk presented by Stephanie Sword Williams. So, you know, how to overcome imposter syndrome or confidence by Stephanie Sword Williams. Mm. But I said at some point I'd have to signpost my book and my Instagram, um, which do have the words fuck on it. Yeah. And she was like, yeah, no, we're not going to be able to do that. And at that point I was like, no, this just isn't. If I, There's one thing that I'm even entertaining changing my brand name or like changing the title of my talk, let alone not being able to plug my own products like that. That's that is a problem. So. I'm actually really proud. I, st- I stood my ground. And to be fair, the, to the person that I was working with, she was only the middleman. And, and she was like, I think it's ridiculous between you and I. And I'm, I'm really sorry. And I just mm-hmm. said, look, I, I don't think I can do this. You know, th- these are all the reasons why we should work together. I've worked with probably more uh, conservative brands and businesses that are a way more straight edge than you are, because you're actually quite a cool brand. Um, so it's up to you, like, kind of take it or leave it. And she actually came back and was like, we're going to go with you and we'd, we'd love you to use your name. And, and I'm sorry that we even had to have that conversation. So nice. it's, you know, I, I had to, you know, really stand my ground with that and at the risk of losing business. But I think it does come at a point where it's like, I, for the people that get this idea and get the message, I don't have to spend a second explaining it. And to the people that I do have to explain it to, well, then maybe we're just not aligned and I can't, I can't and shouldn't really waste my energy on trying to convince people that this will work when I know that it does. So it's it's up to people on whether they're ready to join it. Um, and when they are, I'll welcome them with open arms. But I've got so many other people that I'd love to support and help uh, instead of convincing people that what I'm saying is valid. Steph Saul Williams there from fuck being humble and we're going to move on and talk about another entrepreneur this is another entrepreneur who's a very straight talker very straight down the line but also very affable very polite and i don't think we'd ever use the f word Um, we're talking about nick jenkins he's the founder of Moonpig and one of the dragons on tv's dragon's den now i've loved dragon's den over the years i really it's one of the few things i ever sort of make the time to watch on tv because i don't have a tv so um, it's all about, you know, watching stuff through the iPad and whatever. And I just don't really bother that much. Same with Netflix. But I I do really like Dragon's Den. And I have some problems with it, as a lot of people do. But I think it's just a really interesting portrayal of business on TV. And so what we're going to talk about in this clip is really Nick's approach to investment. You're going to hear lots of behind-the-scenes stuff about Dragon's Den. But I think there's something really interesting here in that Nick's approach to investment was to be very straightforward, straight down the line, offer really good advice, be really generous. And something about that just doesn't really chime with the rest of the show. So that's really what we're talking about in this clip. Um, Nick as just a very generous, straightforward, interesting, intelligent, thoughtful guy and perhaps not conforming to the kind of stereotype that you expect from the dragon's den dragons going into the den and all that kind of stuff. So here we are. Here's my conversation in his, uh, in his flat in London. Uh, here's my conversation with Nick Jenkins. Yeah, what I liked about your style on Dragon's Den 
uh, was there was one uh, on the one I just watched last week where the guy comes in and he says, "I need investment, and I'm gonna. I've got. I want to buy all these warehouses and vans and oh yes, yes." And you just said, "Well, if you just hire the vans and don't put all your stock in a warehouse, and whatever, then you don't need any money. So I'm out. Sort of, you know. So, yeah. you, so you almost gave him this kind of. It feels like your style on there was often to provide as much advice as you would probe, and to be quite generous in that way. Was that a conscious thing, or what is it? I, actually, I don't really. It's not so much conscious. That's what I do normally. If someone comes, yeah. if someone comes yeah. to me and they want to raise money." And I think they can do it without raising money. I'll tell them how to do it without raising money because yeah. if, if as a business you can get by without raising money, then you then then don't. Mm. Um, but did you have a sense of I want to go in there and kind of and try to be very positive in the way that I interact with the people coming in? Well, I, I generally try and do that anyway. So that's yeah. um, you know I, I've been in the same situation asking with my hand out yeah. asking for money, and uh, and I got some very useful advice when I was doing it. Um, there's 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 nothing really to be gained just by 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 mocking them. Um, well, I think sometimes it makes good TV. And I think it, 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 some it, of the previous series it sort of felt like it was going more down a you know uh, sort of thing. yes. I, well, the, so use the word nasty. That's maybe the wrong. Maybe that's too strong. But it felt like it was going down a let's make this a kind of let's make the tension in the TV about seeing this experience of pitching as being a really brutal, you know, kind of experience. And part of what makes that happen is that the dragons have to be really tearing people apart. And you kind of struck me as someone who's doing the opposite to that or doing it in a different well, way. Well, I, I think you can still be, you can still force people to, to question their own business model without having to be brutal about it. I mean, the, mm. the, the brutal bit is, 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 is realising that your own business model is uh, awful. <laughs> uh, and, and actually, then you beat yourself up about it. But there's no, there's no, you know, I, I, I generally don't have to beat anybody up about it because you just have to point out what's wrong with the, with, with the business idea, and um, uh, <laughs> that's enough. Uh, it, it's, it's a, it's a very the, the educational part of of Dragon's Den is about um, the audience being able to look at it and do their own analysis as the same thing is going on yeah. and thinking what question is the question yeah, I would ask, I, I love um, yeah. and uh, thinking would I invest in this? Would I invest yeah. in this? I mean, yeah. I think an interactive version of that would be uh, would be great. You know, people with the audience voting yes, no, yes, no, um, <laughs> at the same time as at the same time as the uh, as, as the, the dragons. The difficult thing is, of course, we have an hour, an hour and a half with them, whereas on TV that's condensed down to about ten minutes. So that's oh, one, for each pitch. Yeah, yeah. So there's, wow, there's, so, so okay. it gets condensed down to the best ten minutes. So we oh, could have wow. asked all sorts of really interesting probing questions that don't get aired because they're a bit dull. Yeah. Because um, that was that was something that has always intrigued me about it. Um, from that point of view, you think, you know, and obviously some of, some of the investments outside of the den, they fail due diligence and they don't happen and, yeah. and all the rest of it. And I often thought, you know, because it, 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 it felt to me like, okay, so the, these guys are kind of flying by the seat of their pants a little bit by the fact that it is only 10 minutes or 15 minutes. But, so you do have a full... Oh, yeah, you've got a full hour. hour. We, we have as long as, as, as long as it takes. Yeah. Sometimes it goes on for two and a half hours. Well, I mean, after all, you know, I'm not going to hand over a cheque if I can't uh, ask all the right questions. So, well, I thought so maybe people are sort of relying on the fact that if it, you know, if you get to outside of the den and then you do due diligence and other stuff comes up that you don't have time for there, that's when you. Sort of yeah, my my, my, my approach to it is generally that if I haven't if I haven't asked the questions in the den, um, I will. If I've asked a question in the den and they and they've answered it incorrectly, mm. then then that's a reason to say no. 
Um, so if I say to somebody, do you have any competitors in the UK? And they say, we have no competitors. Yeah. And then I go on Google um, as soon as the pitch is over and I find out they've got 10 competitors, um, then I'm not going to go through with it. Yeah. Um, if it but, but if I didn't ask the question, then really I, I see that as sort of my responsibility. So you feel like that's your word is your bond at that point? And well, it's not my word or my bond, I th- I think, but the, the, the general principle for me anyway, my own guide was that it was my responsibility to ask the questions in the den and um if i didn't uh, if they didn't say anything misleading um then i would try to go through it sometimes they don't want to go through with it yeah because sometimes they're just in it for the publicity um yeah which which is fine i mean i I don't mind that because actually there was a limit there's some great businesses in there but i can't invest in them all i mean i can probably do five five a year and five a year was too many So Nick Jenkins there from Dragon's Den, and we've got another one of the Dragon's Den dragons, Simon Woodruff, coming up in part two of Beyond Busy 100. So we've got two more Beyond Busy episodes to share with you in this part one. Um, This one is Rachel Paris. So back in 2017, I went to see Rachel's show in London. It was called Best Laid Plans. And the whole show may as well have been called Beyond Busy, the comedy show, because it was basically about... Uh, her setting out her dreams from when she was a child and then imagining that child looking into the future to her in her 30s. Did she have the house and the car and the marrying a lawyer and all the things that she set herself when she was uh, much younger? And I think, you know, I I talked about this a couple of times um, through um, some of the other guests that we've talked about in this episode. I think there's always really interesting lessons that you can learn from different careers. So, uh, we talk in this little clip here about procrastination and about the blank page. But I started by, you know, really asking Rachel about the behind the scenes aspects of being a comedian and being an entertainer. And I think on some level, Beyond Busy is about me being able to really uh, explore my curiosity around different roles, different professions. And almost like if you ever saw the the kids TV show, Mr. Ben, which is like me showing my age now, right? But like, if you're like kind of 40 or above, then you've probably come across Mr. Ben. But basically, Mr. Ben used to go into the costume shop and try on different costumes. And I just think there's something really interesting about hearing the behind the scenes aspects of different careers and stuff. And so I asked Rachel as we um, start this little clip here um, about what the behind the scenes aspects of comedy were like and and being an entertainer. And I basically said to her, I'd seen Liz Gilbert give a talk just before. And Liz Gilbert was talking about don't choose the career that you want. Choose the career that you're prepared to eat the shit sandwich that goes with it. So at the start of this clip, I'm asking Rachel... What does she think the shit sandwiches that goes along with being a comedian? I think, I think there's two, which is appropriate for a sandwich, I suppose. Um, <laughs> I think one is loneliness. Oh, okay. In terms of uh, not in terms of spending time completely alone, although I think you do actually day to day, but. There's there's a huge sense of um, everything being on you, and that has pros and cons because mm. it means when things go well, you experience a huge high, nothing like it, of like owning that achievement completely yourself. Yeah. Um, but when think day to day, just things like 
having absolutely no one motivating you to write except you yeah you've got no you've got you've got long term deadlines like the Edinburgh Fringe for example you do the yeah. Edinburgh Fringe but that's a year away but you've got to start writing that eight months in advance um, you know just like everything you there's no one really organising you or or telling you that you're good there's no one yeah there's no boss saying you've hit this goal or you've hit this target or you haven't as well if you're doing shit right. it's quite hard yeah. to tell because one audience will laugh and another audience won't laugh you just have to go like statistically if most of the time they're laughing then that's yeah. good and probably um, you do that twice but then you've got three or four days in between that yeah. of just total in your head yeah trying to work out whether that was anything of course or not, yeah or and it depends what kind of comedian you are I don't do as much touring as a lot of comedians but if you're a touring comedian you're driving or training around the country alone mm. and you're in that dressing room backstage alone I've been touring recently and I've been very lucky because I go with um, my technician who's my friend um, but when he's not there you're just so I spent like a week just travelling on trains around the country yeah carrying my keyboard going to the theatres meeting new people you're doing a very high pressure show all on your own and if they don't like it you've got no you come out and you've got no friends saying don't worry yeah, you'll be alright right. you just come out and yeah. you feel like shit yeah. <laughs> and you then you go to your little hotel on your own and then you wake up and, and you get on a train on your own in a travel lodge then you come home and, then, and yeah. you're on your own and well, not if you've got a fat like you know I live with a flatmate but a lot of it is um both in terms of like actual spending time alone and also having no backup you haven't really mm. got backup what you have got is people in the industry saying don't forget that you've got to do a show in six months and <laughs> <laughs> and it had better it had better yeah. be good I literally last ugh, I remember like last year working up to this show the feeling of um you know all you think all you're thinking about in the few months before Edinburgh is the show it's so it depends where you are in your career but for me last year it really felt like a sort of make or break situation of like a lot of pressure on me it was the first time I'd gone with uh, like with like a big agency and a big production company a lot of money invested in it and everything and I was talking to one of the producers about it and saying I'm I'm worried about losing money here and you know if I don't know if I like the poster and stuff like that and she said Rachel don't worry about that the only thing you've got to worry worry about I, I want you to focus on just how really crucial it is that your show is excellent mm. and I was like that's the last thing you should yeah, say to me right. that's the last thing yeah. I need to hear because I know that already like um so I think loneliness across the board can be a thing yeah and so loneliness you know in terms of that emotional support if it's not gone well or even when it has gone well and you want to you know celebrate you want to celebrate and yeah. feel good about that um, but also just a sort of hole there where other people would have a team, right? So if you're in a you know, more regular office job, yeah, then yeah. you've got a whole team of people around you that you can bounce ideas off yeah. all the time and chat over the water cooler with and have a distraction with and all that sort of stuff. So it must kind of affect you day to day around. Yeah, it does. And, and don't get me wrong, it makes it sound as though there's no community. There is a community. You do all talk to each other. We all often end up in the same cafes in town because you just right. you know go for some human contact, right. sort of sit and write. Um, but I think at the end of the day, yeah, the only person you're answering to is yourself, mm. and not having even like I don't really know, but like you know I've done <laughs> I've done proper jobs, and like even the feeling of having uh, a colleague or even a boss, even someone 
if you've lost your direction a little bit to yeah. go to and be like uh, I'm not sure that I'm working in the right way or I'm not sure this is working yeah you've just got to sort it out yourself really yeah um, but like I say that's also if it suits you then that's great because you answer to yourself which is good well, yeah so the flip side of that is it's freedom and it's good like and bad, choices yeah. and autonomy yeah, and of all course, that great stuff but, which is yeah. great yeah so it, sometimes it's like the best thing in the world and sometimes it's just like what am I doing like today I told you like before you arrived like I have I have today set aside to like do writing on my new show which I have not written <laughs> and everyone's like and is this saying, for Edinburgh for Edinburgh coming up in uh, uh, what are we now four months or something yeah yeah, yeah. oh yeah. god yeah and um sorry did I just give you a yeah I hadn't thought about that. <laughs> no, sorry about that um no it's good to know good to know um so like this is why the ninja is here that's how that works <laughs> yeah so like the, and today I just couldn't uh like there's no there's no one to hand anything into you know you've just got to like hope that you get anything mm. done the one thing I did do is have I always have ideas in the bath so right. I did have a bath <laughs> and I never have ideas if I take a book with me to the bath then I don't think of anything if I have nothing to write anything down with and I'm really annoyed about it in the bath then that's when the yeah. ideas come so I have thought up a good song I think okay in the bath today one song okay potentially so but that's like five minutes of your that's maybe three and a half minutes yeah hour, you know yeah. <laughs> um tell me about your relationship with the blank page so when you're at that point uh, of you have to start writing and you know you write articles and you write shows and mm. everything else um like does it terrify like is it the same as that whole loneliness thing is there like the, it, the two flip sides of it can be immensely freeing but also it's like terrifying that yeah. This is going to be good. And for me, the thing that's terrifying is it's completely random for me. So I'll have, I'll have like just weeks where I'll sit, even if I get myself to like sit it properly with a coffee and I'm all dressed properly and I've got the laptop in front of me and I've got time. Um, and I just, nothing, just yeah. can't think of anything, like proper full on writer's block. Um, and then other times you'll be sitting on the tube. I think maybe that's it must be a psychological thing it's when it's when it's not appropriate to write mm. <laughs> stuff down that ideas come to you if you but I don't know how to get myself into that headspace yeah so that you've got a free flow of ideas so that was Rachel Paris before she was famous before the mash report and I really enjoyed listening back to that and there were so many little moments in it that I'd just totally forgotten about and also I had a little bit of an epiphany which was oh my God, when I'm really into the conversation, I just talk too much. And actually I could just get to the questions much quicker. So that's, I think I've got better over the years. I don't think I do that quite so much, but I think that's probably always the sign, you know, with a Beyond Busy episode, if I'm like really into what the guest has to say, I'm usually just rambling and talking too much. And like, because I think part, maybe partly it's like a, a thing of, I want to ask the perfect question. So I kind of ask it three times. So I don't know, I'm giving you all my worst habits, which will just mean that you're looking out for them now. So that's not a good idea. But yeah, hey, learning for me and you can always improve. And I love doing these and I love the I love the the kind of challenge of being a good interviewer. And sometimes I feel like I'm nailing it and sometimes I feel like I'm terrible at it. And, you know, maybe there's a bit of an imposter syndrome thing um, going on there, as Rachel talks about. And also as our final guest is going to talk about as well. So we're going to finish this productivity part of beyond busy 100 exactly where we started it which is by talking to one of my favorite writers on the subject of productivity 
This is Oliver Berkman. For just over 10 years, Oliver has been writing this column in The Guardian. It's called This Column Will Change Your Life. It finished at the end of 2020, and he finished it with a final column, which was called The Eight Secrets to Living a Fairly Fulfilled Life, which is very typical of the style of Oliver. Um, He's got this book, which is called The Antidote, Happiness for People Who Can't Stand Positive Thinking. It's just one of my favourite books on the topic of productivity, and a lot of his writing I just really love. And we talk about imposter syndrome and much, much more. Really good episode that was actually fairly recent. It was Beyond Busy 98, but it felt like it had to be in uh, the highlights of the first 100 episodes. So here's a little bit of me and Oliver Berkman talking about imposter syndrome. And so you talk about it by saying the solution to imposter syndrome is to see that you are one. Um, did you put that one in there because you'd noticed that it was a, a current kind of zeitgeisty thing? A little bit, yeah, I'd have actually, yeah. I mean, it's also, I have something I've thought about for a long time and to some extent struggled with, although it's actually of these of these uh, pieces of advice, it's, it's, it's slightly more one that I see in other people than myself, I think. But I think it is just incredibly, um, I've basically never got, more positive feedback than a piece than to a piece I wrote very quickly years ago, which had the headline, everyone is totally just winging it all the time. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which was about some very minor mistake that Barack Obama had made. This all seems incredibly possibly long ago now mm. that uh, anyone yeah. would uh, be critical. Simpler times. Yes. <laughs> and that anyone would be critical of the Obama administration. Yeah. But, um, do you remember was, when Obama used to do like something really minor and it would be like a major news story for three days? No, just, like, incredible, just, just incredible. Everything's just, flipped. Right, right, right. No, absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. But, but um, yeah, and that was just telling the story of how, like, you know, I feel like my whole process of growing up and becoming mm. an adult was a one of and, – and growing up through adulthood was one of um, realizing that – I kept thinking there was somebody somewhere who knew what they were doing, you know. So you, I, I you grew up uh, with a newspaper coming on the breakfast table every day. You, you, um, you assume that, like, or I found myself assuming that, like, whoever puts that together really understands like the world and they know exactly mm. what they're doing. You work in a newspaper office; it's just a constant chaos. Everyone's fighting fires all the time. Uh, so then you think, well, maybe it's people in government who know what they're doing, and then you know. You might know, I'm sure you do know one or two. I know one or two people who work in the sort of lower reaches yeah. of the civil service or whatever. No, they're just making it up as they go along as well. Mm. And it goes all the way through. Now, I think in recent years on both sides of the Atlantic, um, this is all, it's become a bit more, it's become a bit harder to ignore that, that, you know, people in positions of high authority can be deeply incompetent. I think it's not just because of the people who've ended up in those positions. I think it's also because of the nature of the challenges. Like it's kind of absurd to think that anyone would know how to handle a global pandemic, which is not at all to say that many Mm. leaders shouldn't have done it much, much better or deferred to the experts much, much more than they did. But I, but there are sort of things built into the nature of our times that feel like, yeah, I mean, right. We are all going to be improvising everything as we go yeah, along. Yeah. It's also and, much easier to be caught out if every single person 
that surrounds you has a camera on them, yes, right? Absolutely, yeah, totally, yes, totally. <laughs> and just twenty-four hour, just reporting information. Yeah, no, completely, completely. Yeah. And so, what, all I want to say in this in this point really is just that, like, um, you, my imagined reader, you know, don't do anyone any service by thinking that it's just you who's an imposter. It's true that you don't know what you're doing, but this is universally true, <laughs> um, and. Um, and this still surprises me, right? Because I got a res- I got a nice email in response to that article from someone who is a, uh, a pediatric doctor saying that it had, that it had helped him in various ways. And I was like, I realized then that I had was still guilty of thinking that my son's pediatrician, his doctor, uh, was the last bastion of like right. total yeah. authority because I just yeah. completely trust, right? If there's any issue, you go to the doctor and you just mm. like this, I just hope this guy knows exactly what he's doing. This wasn't his doctor who emailed me, but it's just like, Oh no, even medical professionals <laughs> are on some level winging it. And um, I think it is ultimately uh, very, very liberating. And I hope it will stop, yeah. help some people stop beating themselves up for feeling like frauds, not, not because, they need to sort of build up their confidence, but because they actually need to see that, you know, we're all, we're all doing this. So So there you go, Oliver Berkman. And that brings an end to part one of Beyond Busy 100. We've been talking productivity with a whole host of really interesting characters there. So Cal Newport, Chester Osborne, Iman Ismail, Erlen Kager, L. David Marquet, David McQueen, Steph Saul Williams, Nick Jenkins, Rachel Paris, and Oliver Bergman. Hope you enjoyed all of those. We'll be back in a couple of days with part two, and I'm going to do a much fuller uh, thank you at the end of part three. But just wanted to say thanks to Riz, who has painstakingly uh, been seeking out the best little clips and working with me to uh, really curate this and pull all this together. So wanted to just give Riz a huge shout out on Beyond Busy 100 for that. And of course, my regular producer for all of the shows that you just heard, Mark Stedman and Emily, who's also part of my team, who handles all the production and the the kind of pre uh episode uh you know recording and logistics and all that kind of stuff as well so really um lucky to have such a good team um working on this podcast and looking back over those um just yeah i'm just so happy with the the kind of caliber of people that we've had on the podcast and the way that so many of those people have been so generous with their time and generous by opening up and um, sharing some really personal aspects of their own lives and stories and everything else. So that's it for Beyond Busy episode 100 part one. And we'll be back with the next part in a couple of days time. Just to say, if you don't follow me and what I do, then you can go to graymalcott.com and you can find out there um, everything that I'm doing and also sign up for my Rev Up for the Week Sunday email Um, which is a positive or productive thought in your inbox every Sunday evening. And I do that um, every single week of the year. So if you want to sign up for that, go to graymalcott.com. 
And finally, if you want show notes and links to all of those previous episodes, it's all at getbeyondbusy.com. So if you loved a little section from one of those episodes, I'd love you to just go and check out the full episode. It's all there on the back catalogue at uh, getbeyondbusy.com. And of course, you can just go back through your stream and find all those episodes. Um, You've only got 99 other episodes to scroll back through. So that's it for part one. We'll be back in a couple of days with part two. So until then, I'll sign off in the usual way by saying take care and bye for now.